Good morning, 1BC family. It's good to be back with you. We took a break from our Samuel study. Actually, I think we took a break from our Samuel study. I don't know what Pastor Ralph preached on, but I heard somebody say that it was fantastic, so that's encouraging. Anyhow, we're going to pick up 1 Samuel again today. Uh, Join me in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Okay, let's get caught up just a little bit. If this is your first time here with us this morning, we are working our way through the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, We've gone through chapter 16. This morning we will be in chapter 17. And again, if you are new here, our belief is that a deep engagement with God happens through a deep engagement with the text. So that's what we do here on Sunday mornings as a family. We simply work our way through the text of Scripture. So in our last time together, we were in chapter 16, and this is what we saw happen. So previously before that, God had raised up the man Saul to be Israel's first king. But what we've learned so far is that he is a spiritual rebel and he is unfit to lead God's people. So in our last study together in chapter 16, God raised up what he said, or or what he called, a man after his own heart. And what that phrase is referring to is someone who is obedient to God's revealed will and embraces that call on his life. We learn that that man is David. Now, David is not yet the king. Saul is still in power, and he will be in power for a number of years. David makes this commitment. He says, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. Before me, David says, Saul was anointed. This is God's guy. If God wants me to be the king, God's got to take care of Saul. David's not going to do anything to touch God's anointed. So Saul will remain in power for several more years. But this is what we saw. As David was anointed... The Spirit of God, who in the Old Testament comes upon people and empowers them to do his work, the Spirit of God left Saul and came upon David. The Spirit of God left Saul and came upon David. So David has this physical anointing. The prophet poured oil on him and recognized him as Israel's next king. And he also has the anointing of God's Spirit, this supernatural enablement, for David to carry out God's plan for his people. And we're going to see that in our text today. So we are going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 17. This is my all-time favorite story in all of Scripture. It's David versus Goliath. David versus Goliath. It's probably the best-known story in Scripture. Uh, And it's, it's an idea, it's a concept that has become so rooted in our culture. And we think of things like, uh, like underdogs, you know, the, the underdog David fighting the giant Goliath. We think of uh, overcoming obstacles and improbable defeats or improbable victories. David and Goliath, it's part of our culture. But I think we see it incorrectly. This isn't about defeating giants or overcoming odds. There's something bigger at play in the text this morning. So my goal for you is that by the time we get to the end of the study, you will see David and Goliath in a new light. So let's jump into the text. We're going to begin in uh, verse 1. We're going to work our way through um, the first 11 or so verses. Then I'm going to be summarizing a chunk of the passage because this is a long chapter and we have a lot to get through. And then we'll pick it up again um, in, in the middle of the chapter. So here we go. It starts off this way, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 1. Now the 
Philistines. The Philistines, Israel's arch rivals. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephesdamim between Soko and Azekah. Now for us, we're like, okay, historical details, landmarkers, I don't really get it. It's important, so stick with me. Saul and all the Israelites assembled and camped in the Valley of Elah. The Valley of Elah. So Saul and the Israelites assembled their army, and they camped in this place called the Valley of Elah. And they drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. All right, so we have two opposing armies. They're coming together. There's this valley in the middle, and each one of them uh, is encamped on either side of this valley. So there's a strategic advantage there. When you're fighting, you want to be on the higher ground. You don't want to be down below. When you're up high, you can shoot down or you can attack down. That's a much better strategic advantage than having to attack up, okay? So here we are. They're on either side, and there's a valley in between them. So the Philistines, it says in verse 3, they occupied one hill, and the Israelites the other, and there was this giant valley, this gulf in between the two armies. Now, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. You got that? Six cubits and a span? As best as we can estimate, that's about nine feet, nine inches. We're going to pause, though, before we talk about Goliath, and we're going to look at some pictures of the Valley of Elah, I think. So here we go. Check this out with me. So here is the Mediterranean Sea right here. And the Philistines, the arch rival of the nation of Israel, they are a sea people. They came from the Mediterranean perhaps from the island of Crete, and they settled in Israel's land right here on the coast. You can see a couple of these cities, Ekron, Ashdod, uh, Ashkelon, Gaza, Gath. These are the five major Philistine cities. So as you can see, they are in the promised land. Now Israel at this time was up here in this area. They occupied the hill country. So Israel's in the hills to the east, and the Philistines are on their coastal lands to the west. Right here is the Valley of Elah. So in this area here, you have all this beautiful, fertile farmland and a series of valleys. So these valleys were very strategic. The people from the coast, the Philistines, could use these valleys as major trade routes to get to the major cities, places like Jericho and Jerusalem. So they wanted to occupy these valleys in order to control trade and to control the cash flow in this area. So the Israelites, are, where you see Canaan, they're up there in the hill country, and the Philistines are down on the coast, and they're coming together in this clash in the, uh, the plains area, the valleys area. So here's what it looks like. So if you are Israel, here you are standing on your hillside looking out toward where the Philistines are. And if you're the Philistines, here you are standing on your hill, looking toward where the Israelites are. And then in between them is this beautiful, fertile, lush valley. So look here. You're up on this hill, strategic advantage. You're down here, no strategic advantage. You don't want to be in the valley, you want to be on a hill. So you have this stalemate. Neither army wants to advance down and go up the next hill. So they're just waiting there and waiting there and waiting there. Now this is cool. 
it's a little bit tough to see, but in this picture and the one after it, that's a dried up riverbed that's, that runs right alongside the Valley of Elah. So if you know the story of David and Goliath, you know that eventually David's going to go to a riverbed and pull out some stones. Here's that riverbed. It runs right along the Valley of Elah. So here we go. So this is the situation. This is the battle. Each army on either hillside not wanting to go down in the middle. The stalemate, and it lasts for about a month. So back to verse 4. Eyes in the text. Here we go. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, one of the five big Philistine cities. He comes out from the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He was nine foot nine. Raul, will you please come up here? Nine foot nine. Nine feet, nine inches tall. So I could tell you how big that is, but I thought it'd be better to just show you. My wife's probably freaking out right now. This is not a good idea. So from the ground to here, I'm nine foot nine. Now the average height of an Israelite in this time period was between five two to five five for an Israelite man. So we're assuming that David was about that height. He was low five foot. Now, Raul here is, is six feet tall. So take a foot off, and this is the difference. Goliath is over four feet taller than David. Do you get it? Yeah. Yeah. That's a big difference. So, and, and like kneel down a little bit. There you go. All right, thank you very much for being my prop. I appreciate it. So you have this massive human being who's coming to, uh, to fight against a relatively small-statured people. And here's what happens. Verse 5. So this, this Philistine, Goliath, he had a bronze helmet on his head, and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. 125 pounds worth of armor. So here is this giant covered in metal. His armor is going to weigh more than David. This is armor. Nine feet, nine inches tall, covered in metal. Israelites didn't have that. They didn't have armor. They had tunics and very simple, crude outfits and fighting implements. They didn't have metal. In addition to that, in addition to his scale armor, on his legs he wore bronze greaves and he had a bronze javelin slung on his back. His spear shaft, the text says, was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels, so about 15 pounds. And he had a shield bearer that went ahead of him. All right, so this guy is gigantic. He's covered in metal. This, uh, this spear that he had um, it, it was that we think as a weaver's beam or like a weaver's beam. It's tough to know exactly what that means. It was it was long, it was thick, and it probably had a special series of weights on it, so that when he threw it at close range, it would not only go through shields but also body armor as well, which didn't really matter because the Israelites didn't have body armor. So here you have this massive, intimidating force covered in metal who was prepared for close combat. He had this short range javelin to throw at you. He had another spear that was used for armor piercing, and then he also had a sword. A little scary, right? Verse 8. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, 
Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? What does that mean? Philistines are brave. He's coming down from his army into the valley to challenge the army of Israel. The Israelites reflect the disposition of their leader. And Saul is characterized as a man of fear. Exactly right. He says, choose a man and have him come down to me in the valley. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, this day, and this is what gets David fired up. Listen to this. This day I defy the armies of Israel. Okay, stop. Back when we were looking at the Ark of the Covenant on tour um, in the early part of 1 Samuel, we talked about what war really meant back then. This was deity warfare. This was my God versus your God. This was the Philistine God, Dagon, versus Israel's God, our God, Yahweh. And by defying the armies of Israel, he's defying their God. Remember, in the text, God calls him Yahweh Sabaoth. He calls himself the Lord of the armies. This is his army. So now you have this Philistine challenging directly Israel's God. How do you think that's going to go? He says, give me a man and let us fight each other. And on hearing the Philistine's word, Saul and the Israelites were terrified. Terrified. So here's what's going on here. This is something called representative combat. I'm going to teach you a little bit of Hebrew because your life will be so much better. Are you ready? <laughs> Ish habenaim. Say that with me. Ish. Oh, you just did it all in one. That's great. Ish habenaim. What that means is uh, a man who stands between the two, a go-between. And this is what he's doing, literally. He's standing between two armies. So what he's proposing here is something called representative combat. So sometimes in antiquity, generals didn't want to risk a lot of people dying and just an extreme loss of resources. So they would say, okay, you take your best man, I will take my best man, and they will fight in a death match, and whoever wins, wins for everybody. So in this case, if Goliath beats Israel's champion, by the way, they had none because their king was terrified, but if they were to beat the Israelites, then all the Israelites would become subject to the Philistines. Okay, quick caveat. This never worked. This never worked. This is what we're going to see here at the end of our text. When one of the champions dies, the other army runs away. Do you think that the winning army just sits back and lets them go? No. No. There's always bloodshed that follows in these sorts of situations. Okay. So uh, I just want to cruise ahead a little bit because we're short on time and long on text. So let me summarize some of this for you. What happens next is that David's dad, Jesse, sends David to the battle lines to check on his brothers. So Jesse's three oldest sons, David's three oldest brothers, were fighting for Saul. And this was uh, something that we learned about that the king could do. He could just take your kids to fight his battles. But families were protected. In the law, only your three oldest sons were allowed to go to war. That way, if all three died, you still had other sons who could carry on the family name. So that's why all of David's brothers are not there, only the three oldest. 
So their dad, Jesse, is getting a little bit worried about him because this is a protracted battle. It's going on and on. It's been a month. So he says, here, take some food. The supplies are dwindling. Take some food to your brothers and to their commanders and just check on them. I want to make sure that my boys are doing okay. So David does that. Now, the cool part about this part of the story is that David takes those sheep that he's responsible for, because remember, he was his father's shepherd, and he puts them in the care of somebody else. So if you haven't been part of our study up to this point, what we learn about David is that he's always shown to be a good shepherd. And the person that he's replacing, Saul, is shown to be an awful shepherd. So the the person telling the, the, the history here, the narrator, gives us this subtle hint. David is a good shepherd. He cares about the sheep. He's going to make sure his sheep are protected before he, leaves, uh, before he leaves them. So David comes to the battle lines. He delivers the food to his brothers and to his brother's commanding officers. And then he hears Goliath. He hears Goliath come out and taunt the armies of the living God. And he says, are you kidding me? Who is this guy? They say, well, he's, he's the Philistine champion. He's terrifying. Nobody here will, will go and fight him. And David says, well, well, what if somebody does fight him? And they said, well, the king is going to make the person who defeats the giant incredibly wealthy. He's going to give him one of his daughters to marry. So now he's going to be part of the royal family, and he's going to make his family tax-exempt. So all the rights of the king that we read about earlier, he's basically going to take some of those away and just really bless that family. David's like, I'll go. Are you, are you kidding me? That's a, that's a great prize. His oldest brother hears little David asking about the reward, and he gets mad at him. It's sibling rivalries, even in the Bible. He says in verse 28, Why have you come down here, David? And, and hey, with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? So he's subtly trying to taunt his brother, but it actually shows David to be a good shepherd. Isn't that cool? He says, I know why you came down here, because you have wickedness in your heart. You came down just to watch the battle. So David turns around and looks at him in verse 29, and he says, now what have I done? Come on, bro. Can I even speak? Then he turned around, and he asked somebody else what was going on. So we're going to pick up our story in verse 31. Word gets back to Saul. He hears that there's some Israelite among the army who's asking about the reward. And he says, bring him to me. Verse 32. David is now standing before Saul. And he says to him, hey, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go out and fight him. Okay, David at this point, best guess, he's probably 15 to 17. Uh, Think of Raul versus Goliath, but shorter, not a real big guy kind of scrawny. The text told us last week that uh, he was little in stature. And this is Saul's reply. He says in verse 33, uh, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man. And this guy's been a warrior since he was a young man. You can't do this, David. This guy's been killing people since he was your age. But David says to Saul, I love David's faith. Take a look at this, verse 34. David says to Saul, hey, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it 
struck it and rescued the sheep from his mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed it. A lion and a bear. Don't just gloss over the text. Let that sink in. He was shepherding his father's flock. A lion comes, he kills it. A bear comes, and he kills it. And apparently these animals at one point turn on him, and he killed them. What would you do if a bear was coming after you? Verse 36. Your servant has killed both the bear and the lion. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Parents or kids, ask your parents what that means. Circumcision was the ultimate sign of belonging to the covenant. You knew that you were a people of God because of that act. It was etched into your body, literally. And so anybody who's identified as those uncircumcised, they are outside of God's covenant blessings. And David says, I've killed lions and bears. And he's equating the Philistine Goliath with one of these animals. He doesn't even mention his name. He just says that Philistine. He's just another animal and one who's less scary. He says this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. Because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he's going to rescue me from this Philistine. So Saul, stunned and completely out of options, says, okay, uh, go, and may the Lord be with you. So Saul tries to dress David like Goliath. So this is what we need to know about ancient warfare. There were different kinds of soldiers. So you had um, the soldiers on horseback or the soldiers in chariots. That was your uh, cavalry. In addition to that, you had foot soldiers. You had brutes, hand-to-hand close combat like Goliath. And then in addition to that, you had... Uh, artillery, uh, people who would shoot arrows, people who would sling stones, people who would dump things on other soldiers. You had these different classifications of warriors. Goliath was that middle one. He was infantry. He was prepared for hand-to-hand close combat. So Saul tries to equip David for hand-to-hand close combat. Okay, in hand-to-hand close combat, Goliath probably wins. So Saul dresses David up in his own tunic, And he puts on a coat of armor and a bronze helmet on his head. Here's something interesting to note. We learn later on in the story that two Israelites had weapons like this, metal. The king and his son. The rest of the Israelites did not. Who has metal weapons? The enemies. The enemies. So again, just another subtle hint that this king is a king like all the other nations had. He's a king that doesn't know Yahweh. He is characterized throughout the story as an enemy of God and his people. So David puts everything on and he tries walking around and he says in the end of verse 39, I can't go in these. I'm not used to them. So he takes them off and he takes his staff and he chooses five stones from the stream, puts them in his shepherd's bag, and with a sling in hand, he goes out to meet Goliath. Nine foot nine warrior, shepherd kid. Verse 41. The Philistine Goliath and his shield-bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over, and he saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. 
There'd be no glory in killing a kid. He says to him in verse 43, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Because he had his staff. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. Cool speech. Something I want to point out. This is the tallest man in human history other than Goliath. Um, His name, if you know it, go ahead and shout it out. There it is. Robert Wadlow, right? Is that what you said? Okay. Um, He's recorded as being 8 feet 11 inches tall. Look at him compared to the other people. Goliath was about a foot taller than that. So there was some interesting research done by a guy named uh, Malcolm Gladwell in his book, David and Goliath, just studying what happens to people of that stature. So uh, he was thought to have suffered um, from a particular disease that increases the human growth hormone in the body, which accounts for the unusual size. But what also happens is um, he has diminished eyesight. So he can't see very well, and then a lot of times he sees double of things. And this explains a lot of what's happening to Goliath. I mean, look at his speech here. He looks David over and sees that he's more of, of a boy than a man, and he despises him. And he says to him, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Plural. David only had one stick. Goliath doesn't have very good eyesight. His vision is blurry. He's seeing double. This also explains why he had a shield bearer. People in the infantry don't have shield bearers. The projectile team, the archers, the slingers, they had shield bearers because they can't arch and defend themselves. So he had a shield bearer who would protect the archers. The people who were in hand-to-hand combat, they just wore the shield on their arm and they fought. But this guy is also serving as a visual aid to Goliath. He's leading him down the hill into the valley because Goliath can't see very well. Look at what else he says. Verse 44, come here because I can't see you. I get kind of this vague shadow and as you're coming closer, it's like, that's just a kid. That's just a kid. So yeah, he had this massive advantage in his height and his stature and his armor and his weapons. But he was only good at close quarters, hand-to-hand combat as an infantryman. He wasn't equipped to handle what David's going to throw at him, literally. And then we have the greatest speech act, maybe in the entire Bible, outside of the stuff that Jesus said. Verse 45. David says to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. So according to the law, anyone who curses the name of God is to be killed. It says even if this person is a foreigner or is not native-born, even the Gentiles, you curse the name of Israel's God, you deserve death. Interestingly, by stoning. How does Goliath die? With a stone. Verse 46, David goes on. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine armies to the birds of the, and the wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. You want to defy our God? I'm going to show the whole world that he exists. And look further. 
All those who are gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. So not only will this be a confirming sign to the world of Yahweh's power, but also a confirming sign to the nation of Israel that God is there with them, fighting their battles. Something that they haven't seen before with the other anointed guy, Saul. And then he goes on to deliver this awesome statement. For the battle is the Lord's. It's not ours. You called out deity warfare. It's Dagon versus Yahweh. Yahweh's going to win, and he will give all of you into our hands. Verse 48. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, because he couldn't see him, and he was only equipped to fight like this, as he moved closer to attack him, David ran toward the battle line to meet him. What did Saul and the armies do? But the other way, David literally runs at Goliath. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and he struck the Philistine in the forehead. Okay, I tried to do a little math here, and I'm not a left brain person, I'm a right brain person, so the engineers in the crowd are probably going to second guess this and check it, and I'm probably wrong, but I did my best to come up with some numbers for you, okay? So here we go. Slingers at this time would do six to seven revolutions with a sling per second. Six to seven per second. And then they would release the stone. So that stone would travel about 75 miles an hour and sometimes faster depending on the strength of the slinger. So that means if David was 115 feet away, that stone would have arrived in less than a second. Less than a second from 115 feet away. He had no time to react. And as far as slinging goes, this is what the book of Judges says. It talks about these soldiers and how accurate they were. It says, among all these soldiers, there were 700 select troops who were left-handed. That's kind of cool. Each of them could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. These guys were deadly accurate. They could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. So on all of Goliath's body, he had one little part that was vulnerable. The rest of the critical areas were covered up with metal. But he had to be able to see as best as he could. So he had a helmet on, and it probably stopped like right about here. So David's like, all right, forehead, 115 feet away, seven revolutions, 75 miles an hour, direct hit. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down to the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and he killed him. Then he goes and he stands over him and he takes a hold of Goliath's sword and he cuts off his head with it. When the Philistines, verse 51, saw that their hero was dead, they gladly surrendered. <laughs> they turned and ran. And the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines all the way to Gath and Ekron. And their dead were strewn all along these valley roads. So about 10 miles this battle was fought over. This isn't a story about overcoming giants or achieving improbable victories. In fact, once David ran down the hillside and started slinging his sling, people knew he was going to win. You're taking, you're taking infantry against artillery. 
I was reading one historian this week, and he said, Goliath had about as much chance of winning, once David got his sling out, as an ancient soldier with the sword would have against a modern soldier with the pistol. There's no chance. This wasn't about overcoming odds. This wasn't about improbable victories. David was going to win once he started slinging. The function of the story for the people of God served as a call to trust. A call to trust. This was a story about great faith and the type of faith that the people of God were encouraged and motivated to have. This was supposed to be a motivating story. Remember their lives under their current leader, Saul, characterized by fear and failure. And now you have this new king, this new king that God specially selected, characterized by success and great faith. The story was a motivating factor for the people, and it was a taste of what actual covenant fulfillment could be. God had all these promises and blessings. They were not realized under Saul. In fact, Saul kept them from the people. But under David, under David, they could be realized. So here's three things for you. David trusted what God said about God. David trusted what God said about God. Deuteronomy 28, this has been the theme of our entire study in 1 Samuel. Listen to the voice of God and disobey the voice of God and Thanks for adding miserably, right? Trust and obey, and I will bless and protect you. David believed what God said about God. David believed what God said about David. In the previous chapter, he was anointed to be God's guide to the nation. What we learned from earlier on in 1 Samuel is that the king really had one goal. Kill Philistines. Kill Philistines. Protect the people of God. Fight their battles for them. When David was anointed by Samuel... Samuel no doubt told him, hey, this is your future. This is what you're to do. Trust in the promises of God and protect his people. And he did. Lastly, thirdly, David actually believed that he was going to win. He knew he was going to win. He had the tools that he needed to defeat the enemy. The story was a motivating factor for the people of God in the Old Testament, and it can also be a motivating factor for us. Consider this. We can trust God's promises what he said about himself. We can trust what God has said about us. What has he said about us? For those of us who believe in Christ, what has he said? Not guilty. He took care of our deepest need, our sin problem. And as we trust in him, we are not guilty. He's given us everything we need. In fact, that's point number three, 2 Peter 1.3. He's given us everything that we need for a godly life. So I want you to to think about this historical account. And my hope is that it would be a motivating factor for you as well, just like it was for the people of God. I hope you understand the story in its proper light. Again, it's not about overcoming giants. It's about displaying the kind of faith and trust that we are called to. And this is accomplished in the life of the believer and in the life of the believing community. We trust God. Will this story please serve in your life as a motivation to faith and trust? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we love you. We're grateful to be here on a Sunday morning, and we are because of what you did for us through your son. You sent him to take care of our sin problem, and you raised him from the dead. We're going to celebrate that this coming week. But God, you also gave us your spirit, and because of that, we are now empowered to faith and trust 
and we have everything we need to live a godly life. God, I pray that these stories in scripture, these historical accounts, would motivate us to that end, just like they motivated your people. God, make us a people of great faith, a people of extraordinary trust. We heard this morning, even with some health-related issues, that times can be tough. And I pray that in those tough moments, we would not lose sight of this truth, that you are for us, and we can trust in you. God, I pray that you would bless my family here at 1BC as we worship together that we'd be encouraged and motivated by the words from the text. In Christ's name, amen.